Welcome to Therapists Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real-life matters. Hi, welcome back to Therapists Uncensored. I'm Ann Kelly, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Sue Marriott and Patty Allwell. And before we get started on today's episode, I'm just going to do a little shout out to an upcoming episode that we have where we're going to be interviewing Stan Tatkin. Some of you might recognize that name, and if not, you might be interested in listening to one of his more recent books, Your Brain on Love, a great uh, a great read on how uh, relationships, attachment, and brain science all go together. And we're going to be interviewing him, and if you have any thoughts or questions you want to pass on to us... Let us know. So for today's episode, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a dynamic discussion on uh, what we would call the seven circuits of emotions. And to put that in layman's term, what we're going to be talking about is how we can understand human activity and human interactions based on what's core to us. And often we can discover that through research that we do on animals and translating that type of research that we do in brain science and animal brains and how they relate to our own that crosses cultures and how we can use that information to understand our current relationships. So from that, let's get started. Hey guys, I have a really fun topic for today. Shoot. Um, There is a neuroscientist, his name is Yak Pansep. And he, his book is Affective Neuroscience. And what is really interesting, I think, different than what we've talked about so far is that his research has been primarily on mammals. He's known as the rat tickler. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but, but he has found some really interesting things related to attachment that we can apply to adult attachment and relationships and our understanding of ourselves that is related to brain science. So what I want to do is just kind of go over what some of the findings are about rats and mice and cats and things like that and see if we can make something of it. Does that sound good? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. So the idea is what he, what this brilliant man did and his, he's going to be in our resources, of course, so that you can follow up. But he found eight neural circuits in the brain that were related to emotion. And by this, it's across, um, it doesn't matter where you live. It's universal. It doesn't matter how old you are. And get this, it doesn't matter what species you are. So, and it's very deeply embedded in the brain. So you can find an electrode and you can put it deep. It's in, it's when your amygdala and your hypothalamus and if you've been following this podcast, you'll kind of be able to envision where that is. It's not in the cortical, cortical, help me say this, y'all, cortisol areas. Cortical. Cortical. Cortisol is a whole different cortisol neuro, is a whole neurochemical. Thing. Cortisol is what you just got when you said cortisol. <laughs> <laughs> and so in other words, it's not higher thinking. And when you get in it, put an electrode on these different, if you, I want you to think of like a circuit of lights, right? Whether they be holiday lights, you plug them in and the whole strand comes on. So these emotion networks are, once you get stimulated in a particular way, the whole network comes on and you begin to respond in this way. So if you want a cat, for example, to get really 
pissed off, <laughs> really angry and scowl. I never want a cat to get really <laughs> angry and scowl. It's actually very easy to do because they're a predator and it's easy to find. And one of the networks is called the Rage Network, and that's where predatory behavior is found. And it's, and you just, as soon as the cat can, they teach the cats to be able to turn these networks off and on, and they can turn them, what they want to do um, is they turn them off on that particular one. But let me just go through them real quickly, and then we'll go back and talk about them, okay? So the seven networks are, the first one is seeking, and seeking has to do with when we're searching for something, food, something like that. So it's like that hunt and find feeling. And again, this is all animals, all species, all people. Is it all animals or all mammals? All mammals, I'm sorry, with okay. the higher cortical. Got it. So what's interesting about it, but it made me think about like the seeking, and it's related to dopamine. It made me think of like how we seek things on our phone. Ah. Right? That there's a searching quality of like, is there anything there yet? Is there anything there yet? Am I needed? You know? So that's sort of the updated model of, of seeking. We don't um, think of that as animalistic behavior. That's what I think is what gets you excited and me excited about this topic is that sometimes we really are discovering how much what we think is higher order right. is actually this really baseline, primitive, primitive, primitive. things that we're responding to. So right. it's not as conscious as we think. Right. So, Sue, are you telling me that every time I check iTunes to see how many <laughs> listeners download our podcast? That's a, that it's I, seeking behavior. It's seeking you're, behavior. You're no different than the rats that are uh, <laughs> foraging for food. And then when you, when you see a hit, you get the dopamine rush. And, ah. <laughs> and it reinforces that seeking behavior. So seeking, um, anticipation, anticipation, desire. Um, the second one is rage, which I've already mentioned. And that doesn't mean rage like psycho killer. Um, it really is more like even frustration. If you restrain someone that that's what basically, if you think of that neural circuit, that light strand is what's going to be activated. Um, indignation, indignation. It's exactly right. So these little mice, what they, what he did was he put these mice um, and did the different electrodes, and you can turn the electrode off or on depending on if it's pleasurable or not. And so there's three of them that they want to turn on, and they're reward centers. And those you're talking th- about the rats. The rats have a desire to turn them on or do behaviors that will create that pathway. That's right. To stimulate the pathway. That's right. So this isn't what's the word anthropomorphizing. This isn't us projecting our human characteristics on animals. This is actual animal study where that they can you know, repeat the behavior if they want it, or they can turn it off if they don't want it, the electrode. And the, and those are seeking. They love seeking. Play is another one that they really enjoy. You put an electrode on the play, uh, network and it lights up and they want to, they hit the, they hit the lever, hit the lever, hit the lever, hit the lever. They love it. That's like rough and tumble play. It's spontaneous play. It is not sitting in front of a computer playing a video game, (laughs) doesn't light up the play circuits and one of the he was actually very interested in play and rats and he that was why he was called the rat tickler as he learned to make them squeak and um express pleasure express pleasure and one hand he would tickle with and one hand he would just pet and they would always prefer the tickle hand and they would nip at the other hand which was actually a request for play so that's just sort of an interesting side note 
Um, so I was talking about the ones that are reward, lust. So that is, you know, copulation. It's sex. It's also seeking a mate. It's basically when the little so rats. courtship. And- exactly. It's when the rats get a little randy. <laughs> randy rats. <laughs> so if you feel a little randy, basically, and it sets off a whole neurochemical um, flood of where there's behaviors associated with it and thoughts and actions. Um, care, there's a care network where nurturing turns on. It's very natural then where your heart opens up and you, um, you know, let's, let's begin to talk. So I, I'm mentioning the ones that are the, the reward. When, when these electro, electrodes are on, they want to keep hitting the little lever and keep having it happen. So what were those four, four of those? Seeking, play, lust, and care. Love it. They really... I, I, I hit the lever for those two. Yeah. All of those. <laughs> It's a lot of lever hitting. So how do we turn on? So part where what gets fun about this is how do we turn on those networks and how, what network and someone else turns on what network in you? Well, right? before you go there, that's I'm I'm curious because you've done six and there are eight. Right, right. I'm, so so the pleasure ones are I've already mentioned seeking, play, lust, and care. And then the ones that, if you turn these on, they will do anything to turn the electrode off. It's unpleasurable, typically, is rage, which I've already mentioned, and uh, and fear. Okay. Now, um, fear is made of two different kinds of fear. It's also like a, when there's pain, kind of foreboding, that kind of dread, those kinds of feelings. Uh, but there's fear as in predator, a predator's going to eat me, that mm-hmm. kind of fear. And then there's also fear related to separation distress. Ah, okay. Um, and there are two different kinds. So I want to come back to that because there's some very interesting chemical things. You asked about chemical things earlier. I didn't quite get to, but I want to get back to that in just a second. And then because I want to get to the, the last of the seven, which is panic loss. And that goes back to the separation distress. So to more easily summarize this, you put a little electrode in the little rat, little poor mice, and um, you separate it from its family. And it will make a little distress call. Does anybody know what that sounds like? <laughs> good try, Patty. That's pretty good. So distress turns on what network? Um, panic loss. Well, well, it's the panic loss is the distress. So basically when a species, when your same species is that network, the uh, the separation network, the distress signal is turned on. It turns on your nurturing network. So distress, you get where I'm going with this, yeah, right? So yeah. Vulnerability about- turns on nurturance. nurturance. So huh. what you're talking about is all the way, from what I'm understanding, is all the way down to rats, how much of this um, is instinctual in us and part of our uh, mammal, It's hardwired. Hardwired mammal nature in us. Yeah. That when one hits, the other one does. It's not all conscious thinking. and it, it's, it's the opposite of conscious thinking. It's the thinking. opposite. It's really instinctual in us. And the seeking of the pleasure and the avoidance of those that create distress in us is so automatic and without any forethought. And it's, we're just going to bookmark that as we get into more of how we relate to that as humans. But I love talking about it specifically just in animals. Mm-hmm. Well, I also think that anybody who has been on a plane with a crying baby... 
and can't mm-hmm. do anything about it. Exactly. Totally understands that there's something going off in their body. It's very, very, as a matter of fact, they use that to punish prisoners as they'll, they'll play on loudspeakers, a crying infant. It yeah. literally is torture to not be able to help and respond to the crying infant. Yeah, imagine, especially if you hear it and you can't respond. And you can't You're respond. just hearing the distress. You're just hearing and you the distress. Can't. Which is what we all feel on a plane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless your rage network turns on. Oh, well. <laughs> some people's nurturance will kick on. <laughs> but, na- but most naturally, when you see, even if you think of an elderly person or someone struggling, naturally, you don't have to fake it. You don't. It's a very natural response that the care network will generally turn on. So one of the ways, if you want your partner to be softer with you or be nice, is you turn on your vulnerability and your distress. Are you now, saying that the rage network doesn't necessarily immediately connect to the more... nurturance network? <laughs> the elbow's not connected to the, <laughs> <laughs> to the wrist. That, you are right on it. That is exactly where I'm going. Because guess what rage turns on? I would think. Fear. Fear, <laughs> Fear panic, and rage. Loss. Yeah. Rage turns on rage. So, but how he generally talks about it is that rage, rage begets rage, distress begets nurturance. So those are big take homes and they're really hard to do, especially depending on your attachment status, right? Because if you're used to being very stoic and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and being okay and like, whatever, I don't care, um, you're not going to necessarily get the benefit of that natural um, care network, right? Right. And I, I think it's such a great point, Sue, because what can happen is based on attachment, and we'll get more deeply into that as we go, and we have done some um, really deep podcast on the idea of attachment, is that your network that may be going off for you is panic or loss, but your response based on, and that's your, your, your more primitive, but based on your attachment, that may manifest in you as coming out as a little dismissive or uncaring. But that doesn't mean that internally you're experience, not experiencing the, the, the panic or the loss. So when you're emitting something that doesn't then elicit care network back, right. that's really what you're needing and wanting, even if you don't know it. But because of the attachment, you can only emit the the feeling of dismissiveness or or get away. And that actually often ends up being what you receive, the distancing, which promotes then that the world isn't safe. The world isn't safe. You're exactly, exactly right on. And and I would even go further to say that... um, that that's true in reverse, too, that when we have preoccupied attachment or anxious attachment that that distress, that separation distress can go so high that it can be quite frightening and it's hard to reach and it's hard to soothe so that it's not turning on the care network either. It's stimulating Even. that baby on the ground. <laughs> yes. So I want to I wanna, um, interject here just for listeners who haven't listened to our attachment podcast that attachment is pretty much the template template you form with your parents usually or your caretakers when you're little of what a relationship looks like and so we talk about it a lot and you'll hear it on a lot of our podcasts but um that's helpful yeah yeah you think think of it just kind of like software it's the software that's been installed 
And this, and that affects the hardware. The hardware affects the software. The software affects the hardware. So you're talking about the seven circuits being the hardware and the attachment being the software that gets installed. That's exactly right. This is actually, uh, it's like a neuroscience map of attachment. And that's how they're billing it. And so it's very, very powerful. Now, here's another really cool thing just before we uh, go or before we do a little bit more applied stuff is that there are three, you had asked earlier about uh, the neurochemicals. There are three neurochemicals that are related to this. Um, when we are in separation distress, so if we go back to that, this is when we're feeling lonely, like the feelings associated lonely, we're isolated, we are separated from our pack, we are, um, there's been a loss, those kinds of things, right? Now, translate to modern day couples, uh, your, your person hasn't texted you when you want them to, <laughs> um, you can't quite find them, you know, we, they've we can been out for hours. They've been out longer than expected. You're doing the seeking behavior. You begin. Well, that's right okay. Oh, that, the phone. there's so many things to say about this. Actually, one of the things about that, if you rage can actually be enjoyable if it's seeking, if, it, if rage combined with seeking is more predatory behavior, which can be more pleasurable. Rage associated with a more passive feeling of just anger and something happening to you, very, very negative um, experience. Right. Um, fear associated, this is, this is where I was going with the neurochemicals. Fear, I mean, I'm sorry, separation distress associated, like first you get separation distress. I mean, first you get separated and then you feel lost and scared. And then you're supposed, what should happen is you express distress, right? And you cry. Crying is good um, from this perspective. But if you do that over and over and you're, and you don't, that the need doesn't get met, you begin to reap. And that's seeking the crying, just like your point, And it's a great one. The crying is seeking. It's how the best what we can do at that point. So we're seeking, and then um, if the seeking is met, then that system stays intact and it works really well. That's what secure attachment looks like. But if it's not met, we inhibit seeking. And if we inhibit seeking, then that is actually a precursor for depression because we just go into helplessness. So you're talking about it as really starting with a basis of an infant. Yes, and an infant learning that their seeking behavior is not going to be matched and not going to be met on a consistent, I mean, not probably never, but on a consistent more than, basis, right. more than it. And so they learn then that that seeking doesn't provide the security of what they're needing and doesn't evoke caretaking and care. So with that disconnect, then that is likely to be a precursor to helplessness or feelings that can manifest in depression. And that if you have that, often as an infant, that that can be repeated and, and manifest as an adult in adult ways, maybe not through crying, but that that outcome of depression is, is not uncommon. Well, and the other thing that I'm curious about is it seems like before you go to helplessness, you should turn on the rage system because you're frustrated, right? And you didn't get what you wanted. Well, now, see, and then that moves us. We, we were beginning to talk about avoiding attachment where that you give up and you turn off seeking. But if we are still angry about it, then that moves us into sort of the preoccupied um, attachment where that there is 
you're there, but I'm mad that you weren't there and, you know, that we get more activated. So that's interesting. And then, but I keep mentioning the neurochemicals. There are three neurochemicals that are really, that can turn off the separation distress. And the first one, interestingly, is opiates. Huh. That if you give, so puppies, for example, this is really research that is cringeworthy research, but puppies will cry when they're separated from, naturally will cry. Um, and then they actually, they stopped researching puppies and they went to search, uh, researching guinea pigs because guinea pigs do have attachment distress cries. Rats don't, by the way, but guinea pigs do. And the, um, you give them opiates and they will settle down and they stop seeking. So that's really interesting when we begin to think about addiction, that the, the loop becomes totally... Um, a, a one person, a one person loop, right? You meet the need by yourself with the opiate, and we produce natural opiates. But this, you know, so opiates are one way of turning off the distress system. The other one is oxytocin. So when you get the bonding hormone, which we've talked before about in other podcasts, where you get gaze, um, where it's particularly turned on, of course, in childbirth and. Um, breastfeeding mothers breastfeeding and lovers and orgasm and all these things that that will turn off separation distress and then the third one also interesting is prolactin and why and that is what turns on in order to have your milk let down and to be able to nurse right and so to me that's related to the response when you hear distress and this is probably TMI, but I'll share with you anyway. <laughs> but after I gave birth to my child and I was still nursing and I would be sitting in session as a therapist. And if a client was really good at a distress signal and I could really feel their, <laughs> their squeak of like they, they're their needing real something, deep vulnerability. their deep vulnerability, I could feel it in my chest. Ah. You know, I could literally feel the letdown. Right, the prolactin. Uh, the prolactin, and um, it was very, it was that powerful. And what was really beautiful about that is if that was happening between us, it's just all good, because obviously I'm not going to nurse them. <laughs> Let's just be clear. <laughs> However, I was. But your care circuits was, were totally because, turned boy, on. Boy, the love was flowing, and so that will turn off the distress signal: prolactin, right. oxytocin, and opiates. So how we relate that, and it's there's so much, there's just a wealth of, of topics that we can go from here to talk about thinking the adult manifestations of these types of um, activations in our bodies and our partner's bodies, and we've done a lot of talking about that, but to bring it into this topic, when our partner is in distress and the only way that we are expressing it is through maybe indignation or rage. And then we feel really disappointed when our partner doesn't actually let down and become nurturing automatically. And instead they match us through rage. We forget that that's an instinct. It isn't, it isn't necessarily a choice. And so it's to be aware of that is really, really important on both ends because you actually can more mindfully really be aware of that if you're the receiver of the rage. You don't have to go into instincts. We are not rats. We do have some ability to to rise above our instincts with the way that we can perceive things and having safety and trust in our relationship. And we'll talk more about that. 
But just to bring it practical again, if you are approaching your partner with indignation about something that you feel like is really, really vital and important, and then your partner actually responds back defensively and with rage back, it really sets us up for that that metal on metal feeling that couples that people and not just couples can have well totally you're right on and and another way that i think of it is like uh just going back to the animal kingdom that um cats naturally typically will chase will stalk and chase and kill rats this goes to your point of that this isn't yes it's hardwired but also it's affected by environment but a cat that's raised with a mouse will be its best friend and will overcome that impulse. So going, applying that idea and this idea of plasticity and uh, the ever-changing mind that is, is a very hopeful message that we always uh, share here. That, so on one hand, the partner who's receiving the indignation, um, I mean, the, if you're getting anger back, then being able to be aware that, oh, well, I probably just threw a rock, so I'm getting rocks back. <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> but also, if you're getting a rock thrown at you, and if you're in a better state of mind, you know, the ideal response would be to recognize that the rage circuit is on, and there must be um, a very primitive, deep sense of violation or of indignation or of something that feels... Threatening. Um, really fundamentally identity threatening to be throwing the rock to begin with. And so we can end around the whole thing because if, if that need is responded to first of like, I can see how upset you are or something like that, then we're going to bypass this more primitive system. Well, what I love is thinking about this in mammals because if you think about dogs, mm-hmm. and I've always had dogs, when one dog is aggressive, the other dog often turns their belly and goes to the submissive. Yes. So instead of meeting the aggression with, with anger, which they're going to have, a, you know, rage begets rage, right? right? But instead of meeting it that way, they lie on their back and they show vulnerability. Mm-hmm. They turn on the care, the care um, network, according to your theory, right? That's and right. so the other dog you know, plays with them, does something different other than, you know, bite their neck. Right. I think that, and you see that happen at dog parks, right? Yeah. Like it's, yeah, showing your belly is a really great way to reduce aggression. Well, and so what I'm, what I'm thinking is in our relationships with our parents, with our kids, with our lovers, whatever, whoever it is, that when you talked earlier about vulnerability turns on care, you know, really internalizing the idea that, you know, being able to be vulnerable, even when things are rough. That's right. We'll, in, we'll leverage our biology and really encourage whoever you're having the hard time with to be caring. That's right. So all you avoidants out there that are listening to this <laughs> as a recovering avoidant, uh, th- this is our task, people. We're all going to do this together, okay? We're going uh, <laughs> to turn our belly. We're going to roll over and expose our belly. That's going to be our personal work. That's my personal challenge to you. Uh, and for all of those that might go to the ceiling, which I also am that too, I'm everything, um, that that personal work would be to sort of maintain, keep yourself, take yourself seriously, that you don't have to go all the way to the ceiling because that's going to scare the person that you're trying to talk to. And that if you can say it in a, in a 
uh, calmer way with less words, you're probably going to be have a better effect. Or even if you can't, and that's the, the part that sometimes you just can't because of your, we're talking about your software, software, and sometimes it's hardware, that you're going to the ceiling because this threat is hit and you can't help but to keep going to the ceiling, going to the ceiling. If you can just have the awareness of two things, one, that you're going to the ceiling and that's mm-hmm. really difficult. So you're looking, as we've talked about in other podcasts, <laughs> internally mm-hmm. rather than what did you what happened in your world that made you go to the ceiling. You're going, mm-hmm. okay, wait, when I get stirred up and we're gonna, I am flipping out. I'm flipping out. We're gonna do a whole <laughs> podcast. Uh, an upcoming instead of you're making me flip out. I have to say I'm flipping out. Exactly. I'm flipping out, and you remember that. And then you also remember that if you are flipping out, it is really difficult for your partner to give that nurturing response. It doesn't mean that they can't and they won't and they won't try. But when it doesn't happen, that hopefully this podcast, if nothing else you get out of it, you really recognize how much of this is basic and instinctual and that we start hopefully to give ourselves and our partners a little bit of a break in that dynamic and go, oh my gosh, I know I'm freaking out. It's or, not me. It's my amygdala. It's not me. <laughs> We're going to get some right. t-shirts. It's not me. It's my amygdala. Well, it is biology. And the, the really nice thing about that is that even if you're on the receiving end of it, you can have a little bit of room to go, this isn't personal. This is really some pretty hardwired you know, systems that are going off and my partners or my parents or my kids are responding to. And, um, you know, it just gives you a little space to not take it personally. Mm-hmm. And we need that. <laughs> we <laughs> because the back of our brains are going, wow. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this reminds me of an upcoming podcast that we're going to be doing regarding the language of security and knowing your partner's language of security. Language of love is a beautiful thing. And there's a a book out there that I think a lot of couples, if you haven't read it, get a lot out of it. And it's actually quite related, just a different way of speaking to it. But knowing your partner's language of security and thinking about maybe in the context of these seven circuits, you might be able to think, oh, my partner or my child, they tend to go to the ceiling or they tend to turn away. Knowing your partner's language of security can go a long way in how you interact with it and how it manifests between the two of you. But we'll come back to that. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We appreciate you um, sticking with us through the to, through to the end. What we would love for you to do is to sign up for our email list so that we can stay in touch with you and to share this podcast freely. And um, since you're still with us, perhaps that you found it valuable and we would love a rating and review at wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Come back. Thank you for listening to Therapist Uncensored. We would like to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Cameron Lindsay, who takes care of the sound for us. And also to our web boss, Dave Heim of go Nine Media. If you haven't seen the website, it is dynamic and interesting and fantastic. Seriously, he's done a great job. You can sign up there on our email list to stay in touch. It's the best way to reach us. Thanks a lot. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Patty Allwell, and Sue Marriott. Cameron Lindsay edits the show. 